0: Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. God requireth not a uniformity of religion to be enacted and enforced in any civil state, which enforced uniformity sooner or later is the greatest occasion of civil war, ravishing of conscience, persecution of Christ Jesus and His servants. And of the hypocrisy and destruction of millions of souls. Roger Williams wrote this in his famous book, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience, discussed in a conference between truth and peace, which was published the second week of August in 1644. The whole volume itself is set up as a dialogue between truth and peace, two angels who've been apart and unable to find a home in any civilized nation. The whole dialogue is set to advance the idea of personal and intellectual freedom in all domains, whether church or state. This claim for tolerance of human conscience did not sit well with many voices, including John Cotton, one of the persons who is addressed in the volume, who eventually we'll talk about even his response. Welcome to This Week in Church History. I'm here with my co-host, who's finally back from sabbatical. We will talk in a future episode about your work with Wilberforce, but welcome back. Thank you. So we start off uh, this kind of fall season. The semester is upon us here at Midwestern. We've got uh, meetings going on. We're preparing to receive our students here. And uh, as we were looking through our dates in history, it just seemed right uh, in our season to talk about Roger Williams. Why should we think about Williams every time we have discussions about religious liberty?
1: Uh, Roger Williams was at the forefront of one of the principles of you know, what a Baptist is. And, and, and central, I think, uh, Baptist principles is the whole issue of religious liberty, the, the separation of church and state um, in a good way, let's say. And and Roger Williams um, there as an early leader and pastor in New England is very important in the early development of that, I believe.
0: So let's talk a little bit about his history because he he is quite a, uh, I don't know, shall we just use the word interesting, uh, as a character. He's one who always fascinates me anytime I teach Uh, Baptist history or any time that I teach, even church history, um, I don't think we can get away from talking about him. I don't think you can get away from talking about Roger Williams, even if you teach American history. He's such an amazing voice uh, overall. So you have a man who's born. We actually don't know when, right? We were having this conversation before we even started. Is it yeah, we have a general time, but um 1599 to 1603.
1: Yeah, maybe 1600, early 1600s. Um he lasts almost, you know, 100 years, not, you know, could be in his late 90s.
0: Right. So he uh the the date that he dies uh, somewhere between January and March of 1683. Right. Uh he just kind of disappeared off everyone's radar and nobody kind of followed up with him, and just kind of, uh, he eventually was discovered dead in his home, uh, all by himself. But, uh, this is, this is part of, uh, the issue. He was, uh, in many respects, I think when we consider him in the Puritan tradition or would we put him in a different way? I, I, you know, I see him as, um, becoming
1: a Puritan. I mean, he, and, and then a separatist clearly, um, you know he wants to train for the ministry in the church of england he goes to cambridge it, it, it's mm-hmm. a well worn path um the problem is cambridge in the early 1600s um it is a radical institution and and he's clearly affected uh, by the teaching of of separatists who were there probably especially francis johnson yep. and and these it, you know the church of england um, it is slow to respond to the fact that one of their seminaries, which is basically Cambridge, a central one, um, is accepting the equivalent of preacher boys and, and turning them into to radical separatists.
0: And this, this also creates challenges because uh, oftentimes we may not think about it in, in our own day and time, but that separatist position— uh, was not accepted not only societally uh, within Britain but it also uh, prevented you sometimes from work from advancement from from anything so it it created a sense of separation for you or a sense of hardship for you in ways that um, uh, it, I think it'd be hard for us especially sitting in uh, in Kansas City Missouri in the 21st century to conceptualize just how difficult it was uh, living a life that, if you were a separatist.
1: Yeah, you needed to be in good standing with the established church. Um, so if you moved uh, you know for a job, uh, you you needed the equivalent of uh, a reference to show that that standing was good. Um, it, it was almost treasonous to uh, stand against the wishes of the king, which you were doing again as a separatist. And, and so uh, you really were viewed as uh, dangerous, a radical, maybe treasonous. Uh, it wasn't an easy path.
0: So here's a, a, a young man. He's, he's graduated from uh, – uh, studied at Cambridge and, uh, and now he's gotten married and uh, he's hanging out with these separatists There seems to be no place to go. And as the Church of England begins to tighten around uh, those individuals who were seeking to dissent from its teaching, especially under William Laud, uh, what are they supposed to do except to leave and go basically to America? And so while he's not first wave, he still is an early settler uh, in America. Yeah, what you have is— um, a, a,
1: an absolute desperation to get away from danger and to find somewhere um, that you can uh, worship in the way that you, you wish and and not be forced or put into danger by uh, royal diktat, really, uh, a control of the Church of England.
0: So he uh, <laughs> considered the Church of England an apostate church and— uh, <laughs> Wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, yet uh, when he arrived in America, he found the church circumstance not much better in Boston. Uh, as he arrives,
1: no, you've had the the Pilgrims and the Puritans. They've come to New England uh, to escape persecution. That the same kind of experience that Williams himself has has gone through, and and sadly they begin to persecute anyone who worship according to their diktats now mm-hmm. in in the Boston establishment
0: which creates all kinds of conflict and he immediately gets uh, sideways with uh, quite a few uh, individuals um, and so uh, what does he what does he do he he basically moves on uh, he goes to Plymouth um, and uh, there it's where he spends um, some time uh, as well. Um, But he's also concerned there because the church itself in Plymouth isn't separated enough. No. I mean, it's the same in Boston, the same in
1: Plymouth, um, the same in Salem. Who'd want to be a a minister in Salem in the (laughs) 17th century? No one. (laughs) Um, And and for him, um, his idea must have been that clearly, um, Christians have come to New England and they've separated and it will be like heaven on earth.
0: And he doesn't buy it. The whole idea of uh, of this state church ever being able to produce anything this side of heaven that would be right. So what what are you going to do? So uh, he arrives in the early 1630s in the States, or what becomes the States, right, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um By about, uh, what is it, about four to six years later, uh, he's moving on to Salem, which is where he kind of settles in. But it's also um, here at Salem where we, um, he starts to gather some others around him um, and uh, then eventually kind of move around uh, with those individuals um, and he maybe moves to a little bit more of a Baptist position. Can you explain what happens with this kind of gathering of discontents and then uh, this this movement to, to a Baptist position? Yeah, I mean,
1: he's able to um, uh, persuade um, certain individuals um, uh, to move to a position of being more separate, a, a church that is self-governed, a church that— Um, it is leaving behind more and more of their Catholic heritage, let's say. And and so a a church that calls its own pastor um, that governs itself and and not from the hierarchy. And uh, it seems that probably um, a a female introduces him to uh, believers' baptism, And, and he seems to have been convinced by that position now a number of times um, he's in trouble with the authorities in massachusetts and and appears uh, before the general court um for holding um i, I think they called it diverse and and uh, strange opinions and and one of them is the rejection of infant baptism
0: so this baptism position that he arrives at does that uh, I, I mean he's credited actually let's let's just be honest he's credited with founding what is often referred to as the first legitimately first Baptist Church in America
1: yeah they're in Providence and and again um with individuals from this small group and um, they established this church maybe 1638 into 1639 similar things are happening at the other end of the island in Newport with uh, Dr. John Clark um, which used to claim that they were actually the first Baptist church and you had this kind of to and fro between the two but I think they've acknowledged that even though they may have been worshipping first um, they didn't have all the paperwork
0: right? <laughs> Paperwork matters um, and so they <laughs> lost that kind of battle
1: uh, seemingly very important um, and <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, he's, we would consider him to be um, a, a Baptist. Uh, this church begins and they worship according to Baptist principles for a while.
0: For, for a while, right. Uh, and maybe that'd be another subject for another uh, uh, session where we talk about kind of where Williams may have gone a little bit off the rails uh, towards the conclusion of his life, but uh, since we're talking about the bloody tenant overall and the anniversary of its uh, publication what was this volume I mean, it was it was published in um 1644 is when when we we start seeing here he starts putting together all these pamphlets uh that are collected ultimately uh, over about a, a 5 6 year period and uh there there's their statements their treatises uh, advocating for these this position that is absolutely against what the Massachusetts Bay Colony thinks is the right way to do things. It's absolutely against what the British government and uh, any of their colonies think is the right way to do anything. He's he's pushing hard against society as a whole so that there's individual freedom of conscience.
1: Yeah, it, it's a plea for, you know, the, a, a total freedom of the conscience um, – and. Separation of church and state, religious liberty, and and it's a very it's regarded as a very eloquent defence of that position. Um, but the context of the time is very significant. Um, you know, he he's gone from Massachusetts. Um, he's been expelled because of his opinions. He's you know bought land from the Native Americans. He's established this settlement at, at providence plantations and the church is established but then he travels to england on two occasions um to try and and uh, procure a charter for a colony mm-hmm. and and um the the problem is that you know he goes to england he's there in 1644 um, he's hoping to get the charter from Charles, but of course the 1640s is the English Civil War. <laughs> and now, it's, it, it's a perfect opportunity um, for uh, Baptists, especially in England, but other dissenters too, to now uh, make the most of, of the freedom that they right. have. And so part of that, I believe, is why he publishes the book there in 1644, making this case uh, for full religious liberty. Um, he has the opportunity to do that, and and the monarchy is kind of uh, less interested in Roger Williams's position than trying to keep the head of the monarch on his shoulders at that particular point against Oliver Cromwell right. and his
0: army. Well, and he addresses it to Parliament actually making this appeal so that it's it's something that is able to hopefully be a sustained um, uh, ideal that is that is is carried. Now, his title uh, we talk about "Bloody Tenant." Um, the uh, uh, that's a rather offensive title. It, it's a, it's a terrible title to a Brit,
1: um, and um, you know that word. That begins with a B is, is, <laughs> is a strong, um, you know, uh, expletive, let's just say, uh, in England. Although it's used a lot on TV now, uh, but it's still a difficult word. Um, but, uh, you know, I think what he's saying is that whenever this state is actively involved in supposedly supporting or encouraging or defending the church... Um, The result of that is is bloodshed. It's Mm -hmm. never a good thing. And and you only had to look at the wars across Europe, um, you know, post the Reformation even, to see that's
0: true. It's – as soon as it's there and in print, you – we don't have very many copies of it left, uh, although it was widely distributed because it was – uh, there was an order from Parliament to burn it. Yes, uh, it, they didn't like it, so it, it was to be burned. <laughs> and,
1: uh, uh, you know, he was able to save some of them and um, uh, put them in a bag and and carried them back to Providence with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, we may not have had any copies. Uh, Parliament was pretty effective um, in, in uh, burning things when they so ordered it to, to be. <laughs>
0: John Cotton, though, uh, did respond to it, uh, defending an alternate view uh, there. Which I, again, I love old titles. Uh, they tell you oftentimes what's going on in the in the work. But
1: Cotton, yeah, the, the, the whole content of the book is on the title is, is the, page. You know, the thesis yes.
0: is there. Uh, Cotton comes back with "The Bloody tenant Washed and Made White in the Blood of the Lamb." Yes. Right. So now we're going to give you the true Christian uh, perspective yes. uh, when you get there. And then Williams responds to Cotton with the bloody tenant yet more bloody by Mr. Cotton's endeavor to wash it white in the blood of the lamb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: J- John Cotton, if I can remember the quote John Cotton said about Roger Williams that uh, um, uh he had windmills in his head that produced more heat than light um, with their constant turning. Um, <laughs> to be a dissenter um, in, in New England um, was the lowest of the low. Right. And, and Providence, uh, Cotton and others, called the L- Latrine of New England. <laughs> um, it, 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 you know, it was you going against the established order you were a rebel. Um, Now, of course, Americans will become rebels later on and and see themselves as a a good thing, (laughs) but at this time, it was a bad thing.
0: Well, and I think when you read uh, kind of more broadly, uh, the Bloody Tenet, the the original version, and William's thoughts, some have made the case that this is behind what is part of the story. If you understand the, the First Amendment, this is what sits there. Uh, some have said, when you read Locke's ideals uh, about freedom, that this is part of what, what's there. These are Williams' ideas uh, that, that aren't exactly unique to Williams at this time, but it's, it's part of Williams' forceful presentation of these ideas that then begin to inject themselves into all of these different streams of enlightenment thought, and then they just catch on like crazy. Yeah, he's, you know, his legacy certainly
1: um, is part of that stream that that leads to this whole idea of, you know, what is the relationship to be of this new state and a church? I mean, America has had two established churches, Mm -hmm. um, the one in New England, the Congregational Church, and the Church of England in Virginia. So for a country that, you know, supposedly has central this idea of separation of church and state. It was quite a while before you didn't have an established church. It was 1833 yeah. that it was disestablished <laughs> right. uh, in New England. Uh, Isaac Backers, was told he might as well expect a change in the solar system before the church is disestablished uh, in New England. Now, of course, there must have been a change in 1833 because that's when it was,
0: you know, actually done. Or we just missed that celestial event. Um, it's as Williams goes through, and he he uses scripture to point his his views. He does take on and some of this. We could probably get deep in the weeds on theology here, which I don't want to do, uh, bore our listeners over this. He does take on covenant theology. Um, He does take on, um, through that, kind of the the Pado baptist uh, approach to understanding things, which he then concludes leads to this form of government that creates a lack of freedom. Uh, That being said, he really thought that that freedom of conscience was best expressed by people who he considered to be believers, So, like, he didn't like the Quakers very much because he believed their understanding of the inner light put them outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity.
1: Yeah, for somebody who rejected structure in the church and the hierarchy and and liturgy, um, when he was 69, uh, he rose single-handed 30 miles across the Narragansett Bay— to go and tell off a a group of Quakers um, because of how lightly they were treating Scripture. Now, you can understand that position, but it it, kind of shows that, you know, Roger Williams did have uh, principles, uh, even if they seemed kind of woolly at times or something, but especially about the Bible and things like this.
0: Yeah, so it wasn't just a free-for-all. He wasn't in the oh, camp no, that said absolutely. everybody should yes. be given the same thing. So he had liberty of conscience, conscience to an extent that should be recognized. And then once it fell outside of certain bounds, it it would definitely was out. I do think it's interesting the first time I read The Bloody Tenet that um, uh, it, I, I love looking at 17th century interpretation of Revelation. It's yeah. always fascinating to me. Um and he he talks about the the use of spiritual weapons instead of physical weapons and all these other kinds of things. But the beast of Revelation, right, which we often get uh, wild interpretations of uh, in some of the literature, and uh, he's he basically says if you are in a state sponsored church that uses governmental force, right, to, yes. to make people worship or anything along those lines. Uh, like in Europe, like in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, yes. uh, that is what the Beast of Revelation is.
1: Yeah, and, and um, a, a, as you say, uh, the apocalyptic literature of the 17th century um, had that as one of its central themes, this whole idea of the Beast and the Harlot being the both the Catholic Church and the established Church. John Smith would argue the same things, Thomas Helwes would argue the same things, that you need to separate from the false church and become part of the true church because salvation is not to be discovered in, in a state-sponsored church. So Williams
0: uh, kind of finds himself on the outs of society uh, for most of his life, uh, but he fights and he continues to do so. He's well-recognized uh, in American history uh, still. There's monuments devoted to him. Uh, he was one of the voices who fought slavery, uh, shadow slavery for sure, and, and other places where he was trying to help establish uh, this separation of church and state. Um, and it's a um, it's been attributed to him that he talked about a hedge of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world, yes. which may be the roots of what the Danbury Baptists eventually send to Uh, Thomas Jefferson.
1: Yes, certainly. um, This idea of the garden and the wilderness is is there in his writings. Um, He's well-remembered in Providence. You go there, it's the Roger Williams Airport, it's the Roger Williams Zoo, uh, the Roger Williams Tea Room. Um, He's kind of like a a folk hero, the first Mm -hmm. governor, um, but... As for being a Christian and as for being a, a kind of Proto-Baptist or something, that certainly is whitewashed well away. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so he's held up as this kind of uh, state figurehood or something for the state, uh, the colony, the what he established at Providence. Um, you know, I read recently that... Um, uh, a, a librarian in uh, Rhode Island in the Historical Society was uh, rummaging about in the rare book area and and discovered what, um, what turned out to be one of those copies of the Bloody Tenant from sixteen forty four, the mm. first edition, and and the only five other copies of that book are known to exist. And and she said this, I just broke out in goosebumps. It was the pure excitement of touching something that Roger Williams touched. Mm. So it, again, it, it's the historical connection with this man and all that he achieved for the people there in Rhode Island.
0: It's it's such an interesting place. The monument uh, that's there is a monument uh, erected to him uh, in in the Providence area, but the um, in the in the Rhode Island Historical Society, they have. Um, is uh, a, a section at the at the John Brown house uh, of the of the root uh you know the, when they they lost track of his burial site yes. and when they were digging around uh, they finally found what they think are his remains they found nails teeth and bone mm. fragments but not a skeleton but instead there was a root from an apple tree that followed what looks like the pathway of a spine and then it splits at what it would have been the legs yes. and then it goes down it's even turned up at the at, at the feet mm. so they think it's his remains and so it's this apple tree oh, root that cool. kind of take yes. the shape Actually, i think it's fascinating yes. but what what would we have done without a roger williams i think it's hard to to kind of figure out Uh, exactly the answer to that question. Yeah,
1: I mean, one of the things about his legacy, um, we haven't said, even though the the religious liberty is so important, uh, you know, he was a a very early um, kind of man who understood um, that if you want land or anything from the Native Americans, uh, you don't just kill them and take it. That is... God doesn't really approve of that.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: as a believer, he would negotiate with them. He had great relationships with them and and they probably saved his life the winter of 1635 when he was banished mm-hmm. uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, they looked after him and his family during that winter. Um and and he intervened with them later uh, when they planned to destroy many of the settlements in Massachusetts. Um, You know, the very ones who had expelled him, he actually intervened on their behalf. So uh, he really was, you know, a kind of gospel in action. One of the other things he produced, um, I have a copy here, is um, a lexicon of, of, you know, the Indian language. Um, They'd not had a written alphabet. He creates this. Uh, he creates a lexicon of all their words and shows what's important to them. And and that would help people who came later uh, to trade, to preach, to to work with the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Williams has an incredible legacy um, from what he did at, at that point. He just was a little bit of um Wild character while he did it. Yeah, I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the nicknames he's given is gentle radical. Um, uh, he was a bit odd, um, and, and some of the things that he did kind of reflect that. Um, but the amount of good and, and what he achieved really was uh, something special.
0: Well, with that, we will close with a quote from Williams, who stated this, Men's consciences ought in no sort to be violated, urged, or constrained. Whenever men have attempted anything by this violent course, whether openly or by secret means, the issue has been pernicious and the cause of great and wonderful innovations in the principalest and mightiest kingdoms and countries. That was Roger Williams. Thank you, listener, for joining us for this episode of This Week in Church History, and we will see you next week.